Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is uh, your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and ourselves. And I can't really help it. I all I always say almost. Um, I'm Camille Foster of Freethink. It's not almost. It's every week. This is episode 66, on the eve- recorded on the evening of July 19th, 2017. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, I am joined, as per usual, by one Matt Welch, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine, currently at large someplace on the West Coast, and uh, a guy by the name of Michael Moynihan, national correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight, which he just, just got in the can and I believe probably voiced or something. Uh, the gentlemen are here. Well, Hi. no, I guess Michael's well, here. I'm here. Matt is here, but he's on the West Coast. In either case, I'll stop embarrassing myself. How the hell are you guys? It's good to see you. Well, kind of. Kind of. I, I saw I'm, Matt briefly saw, on Skype. Oh, I saw him too. And I was like, who yeah. is that? Um, and the reason I uh, did that because I, I just because he looked fat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I realized, Jesus and, Christ. No, no, no stop. Let me finish, <laughs> Chubbs. I didn't. I it was the way you were like the camera was like looking up your chin. And it was just this really weird shot. And then you pulled out and I was like, oh, that's that's he looks normal now. And I was like, oh, shit. Wait, this is this fat guy we're having on the podcast. He better be funny. I, like, it, I thought it was I, Louis Anderson. I, <laughs> I invite you to my house. <laughs> I love to eat on Camille's barbecue without inviting Camille. And this, this is, is the uh, this is the, uh, the the thanks that I get from you. Well, yeah, I know. I know that's not true. I saw you and I, I thought you looked wonderful. I, where are you? I'm in uh, Bally's uh, in Las Vegas, Mm. uh, uh, home of the Celebrity Room, where I saw Tom Jones uh, live uh, 30 years ago. It's not unusual to be anyone. Uh, amazing at the celebrity room there where I drank yeah. two blue Hawaiians with a guy named Cheese and uh, a good friend named uh, Mike Lupro spent mm-hmm. all my rent money and very soon after that got evicted a from guy, my I'm sorry, a guy <laughs> named Cheese? Let's go back for a second. Because sure. that sounds like one of those comp shows from the 70s like written on hard boy, like a Quinn Martin production. Right? There's a guy named Cheese over there selling cheese. Who, who's Cheese? Do I, do I know There's Cheese? A- have I met no, cheese? Uh, this, I mean, this is 30 years ago. Uh, in college, there's a, I lived across the way uh, from uh, the worst uh, rock and roll band in the history of music. Hmm. They build themselves that way. And it was weirdly accurate. They were called the Mystic Sultans of Benoit. Um, they had such uh, classic songs as Dare to Be a Dick and uh, uh, I'm on Fire Nude. And so two of the <laughs> lead things... The Not lead singer team. was a guy named Cheese, who's a little leprechaun feller. Uh, and then uh, this other I'm friend. I'm sure he's uh, doing great these days. <laughs> uh, Mike uh, Lupro, who's uh, now, I think, a professor of, uh, of uh, popular culture uh, somewhere. And uh, a swell guy, he ended up going out to, uh, to Prague and we played some music together out there. But anyways, they showed up uh, and uh, they, they broke into my house across the, the way through the window. Uh, at about two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, some uh, day in 1987, poured a 40 of a uh, Schaefer onto my face to wake me up because it was, of course, two in the afternoon. I was asleep and uh, and said, hey, Matt, we got tickets to go see Tom Jones. Uh, and so we just went uh, got into this uh, sort of like a, a death mobile van thing. We were literally urinating in in funnels, in holes, so as to get there on time. This is, uh, drank is, a case of beer on the way. This is really uh, going. Uh, 
No, it's just like memory. I mean, they say you're back yeah. here. The smells. Yeah, you know, just you're on the, the radio right now. <laughs> What's that? Sorry. I said, you know, you're on the radio right now. You're talking about uh, peeing no. funnels no, and with cheese. You guys, you cheese in the, the funnels. So, uh, well, I'm gonna uh, be, yeah, it was I, great. Yeah. Uh, grown women threw panties at Tom Jones even then, yeah. uh, and he gave a, a version that was long before he'd recorded it live of uh, Prince's "Kiss," which is a new song out there, and is uh, just uh, tremendous. The the, wow. the Welshman had some pipes. Yeah. Well, uh, that. Thank you for yeah. that story. I mean, yeah. just, you know, unless that I mean, unless that happens tonight in our valleys, <laughs> although I suspect you'll be going to bed at 930, having gone to the Vince Neil barbecue at Circus Circus. Uh, you know, good God. You, you don't I'm know Matt here, Welch. I'm actually here for uh, Freedom Fest, which mm. is the annual gathering that I think Moynihan's been out here once or twice. I never uh, have. Camille. actually. I was I was there doing a story um, for Newsweek on James Randi. Uh, and the Randy uh, conference was the same time as Freedom Fest. And I went over, I think I walked through it. And I was like, man, these guys love freedom so much that they invited Dinesh <laughs> D'Souza, um, who didn't have his freedom at the time because he was a convicted felon and he was in prison. But uh, yeah, that's true. He, he, Although that's not the craziest thing that's oh, ever God, happened at, at Freedom God, Fest. No, I mean, I it's think, just a bunch of weirdos. Yeah, Matt was there one year for uh, among the crazier Freedom Fests, the year that they had uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah, it was two years ago. Uh, yeah. I wrote a piece. I think I was the first one to use the uh, in a headline the very unoriginal uh, concept that this was the idiocracy uh, candidate, which is my reaction to see him speak here two years ago. Um, and I made a series of just completely inaccurate predictions about how there's no way that someone like that could be elected uh, president in any country that I recognize. Um, but otherwise, it's a pretty entertaining piece uh, to go uh, look at. But it's interesting. So this is a this is a libertarian Con conference, but also Is with it? the Dinesh D'Souza's and the Steve Forbes, it has uh, a lean in a uh, conservative Forbes. way, like sort of conservative <laughs> gold bug uh, thing. It's a it's a it's a strange mix, and um and uh, actually watching Trump here, and he got a lot of cheers and filled the room. Yeah, I don't think it's, that doesn't too. sound like a libertarian uh, event. No. Here. By the way, it's, well, I, it's I a say, point out, and Matt can't say this because because he's at Freedom Fest and he's in the universe and being nice to those people. But I believe <laughs> it is run by Mark Skousen. Is that still true? Yeah. And Martin Mark Skousen, um, whose uh, father, you can't blame the son for the father. There's probably plenty of things to blame him for, uh, is uh, Cleon Skousen, I believe, or his uncle. I think it was his father who wrote the book uh, that for a very brief period of time, uh, enraptured and, and, and uh, Glenn Beck called the naked communist. And he was like a Bircher Mormon weirdo figure. He's a really interesting figure. I mean, everything he said, he was crazy, but I just looked on the freedom fest website and uh, the featured speaker this year is William Shatner. Yeah. Is that, is that true? Yeah, is he that. like, why is he there? The Shat, uh, Shatner. Is he um, like political? Uh, he's here. Cause why the hell not? Cause if you had a chance to get William Shatner, wouldn't you? Um, and it uh, every year they have a different uh, you know theme. Years pass. It's like, are we Rome? Uh, kind yeah. of thing. And mm. uh, and no. this one. Uh, <laughs> no, like, next uh, panel. Oh God. <laughs> to boldly go. I I have appeared. I'm not going to lie about this. I have appeared uh, on stage uh, in the musical theater uh, along with uh, Grover Norquist in tights. 
here uh, doing a uh, version of Camelot in which Steve Forbes plays Merlin yeah, and gives him chopping I uh, disquisitions so about Bitcoin. Please stop talking about this because so even the thought, yeah. like this is really, uh, <laughs> this is why drones were created. Can I, can I, <laughs> I just want to, can I shout you out though? Because, um, and, and Dan Beer uh, actually reminded me of this today. I actually brought it to my attention because I just did not remember it. Um, but you, the piece that you wrote about the idiocracy candidate has uh, a marvelous passage in it which I'll read for your hearing. Um, at church, they used to say, I'll read in your hearing. Um, this is the single dumbest speech I've witnessed in 17 years of covering American politics. Not just the lies, the policy positions, such that they existed, or even the dizzying height self-regard, but the level of basic human intelligence and decency. For a guy who complains that the media only quotes, quote, half sentences, Trump's real adversary is the full-length transcript. These aren't speeches, they're seizures. Wow, that's a Matt Welch? Marvelous. That's really good. Marvelous wow. Matt Welch. Unbelievable wordsmithing uh, there. The, the, thank you. Um, uh, again, I was wrong about all the prognostications. And there's a little uh, writing tip in there, which is that almost all of those lines uh, I had were just uh, what I was tweeting at the time. Uh, it turns yeah. out like the first dumb thing that comes to your brain usually is a little <laughs> bit more, more, more colorful yeah. than your considered writing, which is something I wish more people would take the tweets and actually expand them into coherent sentences and writing. But but why bother these yeah. days? Like, Louis, just, like it, Louise Mensch. Uh, oh, is that is she still alive? Does, isn't didn't she get kidnapped by the GRU? Louise Mensch, <laughs> she was. Today, she was tweeting uh, about how, uh, you know, uh, new reporting is going to show that Steve Bannon uh, faces the death penalty. I mean, she's like, uh, it's, uh, it's like, uh, by the way, seizures. I, I want to point out that Louise Mensch, I pointed out a long time ago that I was going to write a piece on her right when she came to the U.S. after the um, big media uh, commission that happened in the U.K. And she was kind of one of the people on it and. Um, was notoriously sort of nice, actually, to Rupert Murdoch, maybe angling for a Fox gig when she came to the U.S. But she seemed to be a serious person. She was an MP. She was a very famous or well-known chiclet novelist in the U.K. And she came here and I had lunch with her. And uh, I never wrote the piece because it was just all over the place. But she seemed normal enough. And she seemed like... But her husband, I believe, is like the manager of Metallica, or a bunch of bands. I think she's made of Metallica, a bunch of, maybe the Red Hot Chili Peppers and bands like that. And, you know, they do quite well. And if I were him, I would start be, being concerned. I mean, this is not, if you're saying that, you know, Andrew Breitbart was executed or murdered by the Russians and, you know, uh, Steve Bannon's going to be, get the death penalty, you know, you gotta, gotta call somebody at that point. Don't you think so, Camille? You got to call somebody? I don't know. No, I don't want to talk about Louise Mensch. I do want to talk about something else, but that, but she's fucking nuts. That's what I'm saying. She's, um, she's, she's a little, I mean, she tried yeah. to hire me for something not too long ago too. And I, I, I had a sandwich. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I remember sand I, when she was, uh, yeah, I, that thing. yeah, I had a sandwich, uh, uh, I let her buy me a sandwich of prep. She wasn't, but she, but she hadn't gone completely insane at that point. Not that I was. At least aware. you weren't no. aware. Of no, yeah. not 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 at that point. No, yeah. and I was like, no, thank you. This doesn't yeah. seem like uh, something. There's a, well, yeah. it's about uh, a year we've got, we should drop the subject. Yeah, but. we've got before we get to politics though. I, I, yes, I think we do have some. We some, got some. We've got some business. We got some announcements. Eventually, we will get to uh, some of this breaking news with Jeff Sessions. Yeah, uh, it won't be breaking by the time you guys. Yeah, but it's still breaking for us right now. The healthcare. 
um, stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the the failure of that, uh, some yeah. new legislative initiatives uh, on the part of the Trump administration, and, and perhaps uh, something else. Uh, but before we get there, uh, yeah. we do have uh, some other things. Drew White, uh, listener, I uh, love friend Drew of the podcast. Drew White was Drew's good a fr- Drew. Drew White is not a friend us. of mine. Here we go. Yeah, he sent us a bottle of uh, of Bushmills, which uh, Moynihan and I are drinking here in New York. Yep. Um, he wrote us a, a very nice note um, addressed to me, but he, mm-hmm. he did direct me to share the uh, the inebriate with mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Our, our good friends, my good friends here, my collaborators. Uh, I believe he described us as a posse crew. Uh, which both of those things are racist. Yeah. Um, and Island of Misfit <laughs> Toy Compatriots, which I appreciate. He, al- he nice. also, and, and by the way, we've had some complaints uh, from, there's always like one person every week who's like, could you guys, could you stop the swearing? So guys, earmuffs, <laughs> earmuffs right now. He also called you, uh, Camille, a fucking dickhead. Uh, and I was like, I love you, Drew. But That's that was, true. no, it's not true. That's but not Drew true. is at, at Mr. Drew hashtag. So you should follow him because, um, and, and I have to do that too. Um, uh, because he wrote uh, me a very, very nice email, um, a nice email, a nice letter. And in it, he included um, money. Because <laughs> I made a joke, uh, which I was totally serious. Yes, cash money. Did you not, did you no not cash, hear that no while, cash we, were, in while my we were setting up? Yeah. I asked for it, though. <laughs> Seriously, like I basically said, can I have money? And I said that I would take fiat currency. And um, I told him, his, uh, him to don't worry about his daughter going in Paris unless she stays in Clichy. Um, you know, Matt knows this from Paris. Uh, we used to be Clichy Supois, which is all the riots in, what was it 2006, something like this, something like that. Um, and he wrote me a very nice thing. And he said, and he said that, um, uh, he uh, enclosed fiat currency, which is very, very, and, and his daughter is home safe, but they, they did stay in an, air, in an Airbnb across the highway from Clichy. So, you know, she didn't listen to me, mm. but, um, uh, at Mr. Drew ha- uh, hashtag, who's uh, Drew White sent this incredibly nice email. And I, I just to point out that even if there was no cash in it, um, I really, really appreciate it. And I really appreciate it more when there is cash in it. So, yeah. so we're drinking his uh, Bushmills and I, I t- a tip of the paper cup mm. to you, poor yes. little ground for the homie of, mm. of uh, Drew White, who's, who's the best. And the booze too, he gave the booze too. Very good. The booze and yeah. I got the cash. It's like a punch in the face. But ask, that, I'm a ask, ask for cash and you'll get it. Yeah. Actually, that's all I got. So can other people send cash now? Someone send me a million dollars. Just see if that happens. I literally have about one one hundredth of what Camille has. So just send it to me. <laughs> all right, let's talk about have, politics. Yeah, there, saying, there are other things I, I want to talk about, but let's yeah. let's let's uh let's chat a little bit uh, of politics. What is the latest with this uh Jeff Sessions oh, dear. situation, Moynihan? It sounds like uh, I guess Donald Trump was talking to the Times, uh, yeah, which is strange. Uh, the, well, it's the failing, un- look, it's failing un- New York Times. Uh, it's unclear because I read it on. I th- yeah, it was with the Times, a wide ranging interview with the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Because it's funny, and this is the thing that I've talked to somebody um, in DC about Bannon, and as Bannon rails and rails and rails against the MSM and the fake news, he constantly is texting with reporters that I know, yeah, and like giving them stuff, and like I mean, he understands exactly. It's a, if it's it was all sh- fake, he wouldn't be giving them things. Yeah. Right? you're going to totally bastardizes. So it's Peter Baker, Peter Baker, Michael Smith, uh, Michael Schmidt and Maggie Haberman, all three of whom have done very, very good stuff. 
And I'll just read the lead. Everyone will be familiar with it probably by by tomorrow. But President Trump said on Wednesday that he never would have appointed Attorney General Jeff Sessions had he known Mr. Sessions would recuse himself from overseeing the Russia investigation that has dogged his presidency, calling the decision, quote, very unfair to the president. And I presume that he's speaking in the third person and talking about himself and his Costanza-like way. In a remarkable public break with one of his earliest political supporters, Mr. Trump complained that Mr. Sessions' decision ultimately led to the appointment of a special counsel that should not have happened. Sessions should have never accused himself. <laughs> and if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he did, the, before he took the job and I would have picked somebody else. <laughs> this guy is really something else, this president. Um, a couple of things, uh, and before we throw that out there to you guys, are you going to applaud him for his for his honesty? I mean, it's kind of great in sort a way. Of refreshing. It's kind of refreshing. This is it's what like, I said. It's like had I known that any of this would have happened in the future, I wouldn't have done it. That's what like everyone who gets divorced says. <laughs> had I known that this woman was a psychopath, I wouldn't have had sex with her. But the the thing that's amazing about this, and the first thing that I thought, and I said to you actually, is uh, uh, somebody like Stephen Miller, who who is basically the guy who writes the Poland speech about the West. He's the guy who wrote the inauguration speech along with, you know, Bannon and, and Trump. He's kind of the brain of that, of that kind of uh, nationalist uh, psycho Trump, but mm. he kind of cleans it up. And he's somebody from Jeff Sessions shop. I mean, there, this is, this was a very kind of tight group of people. Sessions was his type of guy in immigration. Mm -hmm. He gave him Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller kind of came in and put, put a lot of life into the campaign. Remember, Stephen Miller used to open for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Not a charismatic guy. He looks kind of like a Fredo from Godfather. He's like, has that look <laughs> to him. He has no charisma. He has dead eyes. He's like a Tim Burton <laughs> puppet. But for some reason, people liked him. And it's a really weird and interesting break uh, that that's happening. Um, is it actually something that Donald Trump woke up and said, we're going to isolate him in a kind of mafia-like way? I don't know. I, I, one can't you know? really know these things. It's because it's a little Yeah, he's so hiccup. frenetic. Um, Matt, uh, this, this piece also says um, that uh, he was asked if Mueller investigation would cross red line if it expanded to look at family finances beyond any relationships to Russia. Mr. Trump said, quote, I would say yes. He would not say what he would yep. do about it. "Quote: <laughs> I think that's a I think that's a violation. Look, this is about Russia." Unquote. What 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 do you make of yeah. this, Welch? Uh, well, he also said. I mean, that comes after a, a section in which he says um, something to the effect of that he has no plans to and doesn't imagine himself firing, getting rid of of Mueller. I remember hearing that about a, a guy named Comey. In, in, mm. Mm -hmm. Interesting news um, that uh, that Sessions? he's sort of <laughs> protecting the investigation there. Um, so uh, and you know the the part of the Trump family fortune that's interesting and that's relevant to the story is in Russia. And there's a lot of it. I mean, they've got uh, a lot of the characters who are at, who were at the meeting with Don uh, Jr. Uh, a year ago were people that they had known and done business with through the Miss Universe pageant, some other stuff. Um, I mean, that's the stuff that is super relevant. I'm not sure that whatever, you know, uh, United Arab Emirates hotel he may or may not have. I don't I don't honestly know. Uh, it's going to be ultimately all that relevant. Maybe it, it kind of will be. But it sounds like he was sort of like skylarking and and uh, responding to hypotheticals in the moment 
rather than being focused on it. My big read uh, uh, between the lines on this is that what he's really pissed off about is that Sessions recused himself without telling Trump. Trump found out it said the, the distance between Sessions making that decision and making the announcement of the decision or at least telling other people uh, internally was about 30 minutes. So he didn't have any heads up. And, he, and uh, there was reporting at the time uh, uh, about how Trump felt betrayed by that. Sure. Um, it's it's clear that he has no um, real working knowledge of the normal kind of separation uh, not just of powers, but of institutions within the branch that he controls. Uh, he's operating as someone, how he's operated his whole life, which is sort of a mixture of of people are rewarded based on loyalty, sometimes on family ties, sometimes you know, that doesn't help at all, uh, and, and et cetera. But he's not used to these kind of uh, tight-ass institutional restraints. And so I'm sure he would have loved to be able to have talked Sessions out of it. Sessions doing this starts this chain of things in motion. It's not the only thing that does. A lot of other things um, start this investigation in motion, not least of which is Trump allege or firing Comey and alleging that uh, that he maybe has a tape out there. Uh, so I think we might have gotten to there anyways. But it's I, I, I think that he's sort of expressing frustration that the world in which he lives in, despite being the most powerful person in the world uh, on some level, uh, he's constrained and he's re reacting impulsively to these restraint constraints. Uh, to Michael's point, it is significant that Sessions is really uh, like if there's a small diagram of people who are really important to Trump ideologically and from a power point of view. If there's a list of 10 people, Sessions is on that list. And he's actually one of the most important ones because he was the first important person within institutional Washington to really kind of pledge himself to him. Chris Christie had bounced before, but he had already been, you know, his, his ratings were going uh, through the floor and he was embroiled in Bridgegate and a bunch of other stuff. And we could see him since. He's just sort of maybe, uh, maybe drifted that's a, at sea. Maybe that's an obvious next choice. Uh, if Sessions bounces, yeah. uh, Chris Christie shows up and he, takes the gig. Isn't it crazy? I though, don't think so. That you see. I don't this. think so. He. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think? Sorry, just to sure, just to sure, cut sure, in. Uh, sure. Christie made a comment two days ago saying that, uh, and actually agreeing with what Camille was talking about last week on this uh, podcast, saying that he thinks that it was likely that Donald Don Jr.'s um, uh, role in that meeting and the holding of the meeting was itself illegal on its face. Hmm. Um, so that doesn't sound like the comments. Well, of you know, this is a guy who has, you know, drones from the Bergen record flying over his you know, <laughs> beached body on, on, you know, and there's no, I mean, being booed at Mets games for, uh, for catching a fly ball. There's nothing awesome. in the, in the Trump, um, association he's, that he's, that has moved his career forward. He might as well go the other direction at this point, but, you know, for, for back to the to the Trump thing quickly, because, you know, this story will unfold a little more. It's kind of suggestive right now. But when Donald Trump says these things, right? I mean, this is a man who doesn't think before he speaks. He doesn't understand optics and politics. This is something we can also probably discuss, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis healthcare. What does it sound like to anyone who's listening to that? It sounds like if it, the, the version of it, when you read, not even between the lines, if you just read it slowly... Is him saying, hey, Jeff Sessions, I hired you to shield me from this. 
Why didn't you shield me from the Russia investigation? Uh-huh. Sounds That's like, all it sounds, sounds like to me. It sounds exactly like You know, that. and what Matt's yeah. point, I think, is right. He's kind of spitballing, and he's angry, and he's like, you know, I, I expect loyalty. I'm a business owner, and I fire people if they're not loyal to me and doesn't mm-hmm. understand, you know, how government works and what the attorney general's job is. And he is literally never – this is not a man who steps back and says – uh, yeah. Hey, comms guys. I think, I think I stepped in it. He's just like, takes his oversized coat and he's like, all right, where are we going next? I need a hamburger. Over, oversized coat and far too long tie. A huge long tie and like just ketchup. Yeah. I love ketchup. I gotta go. I gotta get ketchup. And he's like, dude, do you realize what you just did? It's like top of everything. It's like on Drudge in red. And Dr- by the way, Drudge, who I always think is a really interesting bellwether. He seems to really be tr- turning on Trump in a way, uh, which, you know, I always I find kind of fascinating. He's been like ripping on Don Jr. And this is a guy who this is a website that is is I just out of habit since the Lewinsky scandal. I've always had my browser open to it hmm. and my all of my browsers open to Drudge Report because I get a good sense of like on the right in particular what people are reading and what they're looking at. And it's very and it's been I can't I haven't been able to read it in a couple of years even yeah. look at links because like Alex Jones stuff and it's Trump 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 and it seems I go back and check now and it seems to be that um turning on Trump and I think maybe healthcare is a big part well, of that I was just gonna say maybe we should transition to the collapse of Donald Trump's attempt to try and repeal and replace Obamacare with his own new uh health care plan uh, this uh, this is something I mean, it after just barely making it through the Republican controlled house sometime back, followed by this bizarre political theater where Donald Trump invited um, for whatever reason uh, for an incomplete victory celebration, incomplete victory, all in, in mm-hmm. quotes is a thing with a dash between it. Um, the entire like Republican House uh, to have a party on the White House lawn and. Uh, announced that the bill was now going to have to go to the Senate. Um, yeah. uh, this thing has uh, has imploded. Uh, Rand Paul, Susan Collins, uh, for opposite reasons, opposed this piece of legislation. Uh, John McCain went to have surgery uh, on a, to have a blood clot removed, and it, we yeah. now know has uh, brain cancer. Yeah. Um, so he will be the out same, of the same, for Apparently some the same time. type that killed Ted Kennedy, too. That's what I, well, that's which what I Beer reminded me of, Dan Beer, our, our producer, intrepid producer, um, that uh, Ted Kennedy had a, a similar inconveniently timed medical issue, which caused Obamacare support to fall below about 60 votes. Oh, I thought you were about to, d- to, to unwind some conspiracy um, theory. Yeah, no, there's no conspiracy <laughs> theory. Um, in, in fact, I, I think it's just a just a random coincidence. Or well, maybe piece, Beer believes there's a there's an actual conspiracy afoot. But some people Someone have using said brain cancer to kill people to not well i'm sorry yeah, yeah predicted giving, his death i'm giving, sorry well i mean you know cia can give hugo chavez cancer it can give wow. cancer. Yeah, yeah. um that's what i don't i believe that's what i think yeah <laughs> um but no people a few people have suggested um i think doctors too that you remember those mccain short outs uh in during the mm. comey investigation where he was kind of incoherent mm-hmm. mostly incoherent um, and, you know, Matt has written a very critical book of John McCain and can speak to this. Um, you know, yeah, will, for you, everything, will you savage for, him now, for, Matt Welch? Yeah. For everything you can say about McCain, I mean, I don't think he's a dummy and didn't think that when he was kind of making these dribbling noises during the Comey um, uh, hearings that I thought there's something's going on. I mean, I really did. I think there's like there's something up here. And no, it's it's regardless of whether you uh, agree with. Uh, Senator McCain. Um, it's it's, sad, it's uh, sad news and sad news to hear, and especially for his family, um, a number of whom um, I know and like. But uh, and oh, incidentally, uh, footnote: 
We always get this too. I like to engage with our readers quite a bit. Uh, there was uh, after we had Eli Lake on, which who you know um, I've known for years. Matt's known for years. Uh, you fairly recently met him. He no, didn't no, remember the the first time we met. So yeah, but it's a DC. You know, you can forward. do the whole DC cocktail party. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I, was, I, this, I don't know why these people think this cocktail parties all the time of <laughs> conspiracies. It's like DC. And you people you know and you become friends with. Mm-hmm. And Eli, um, who, who I love and I think is very funny, and um, we agree and disagree on certain things, but you know, just have him on the show because he's great. And he's a listener and he's he's smart and he has mm-hmm. sources uh, close to the administration and it's useful. And I, I just who, saw who this. Who doesn't? And the McCain tie in here is that I saw somebody mm-hmm. posting on the Facebook page who said, you know, what's next? You're going to have John McCain talking about foreign policy? To, to you know, with I would love to Maybe. have John McCain talking about yeah. foreign <laughs> uh, we had Skip Gates on talking about race with you. We have uh-huh. people on that have a variety of different views. And I think there's a libertarian instinct to be like, wait, wait, this is our echo chamber. Why do you yeah. not have people? Well, this in is there? this is not unusual to libertarians. Every no, everybody I know, I know, I know, yeah, I know. everybody I'm loves an echo chamber. Because um, I get it from libertarians. But yeah, 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 yeah. We, this is not an echo chamber. But it, in either uh, let case, me, let to, me pick up on a couple of tangents on the I was gonna bring John us back to, to to healthcare. You want to talk John McCain? Well, let's talk John yeah, McCain. We're not going to get back to it, are we? So let's just nah. throw it in there. <laughs> nah. Just want, just wanted to uh, say, uh, point out, uh, man's eighty years old. I, uh, I and uh, Michael's right. I wrote a, a critical biography of him, but it wasn't to criticize absolutely everything about him. It was, was in many ways uh, uh, empathetic, and and I, I would hope that it was fair. A lot of people who know him well, including people who worked on his campaign. Um, liked it and thought it was good. And I know at least some people who read it and said, okay, I'm voting for him. But Matt, the <laughs> subtitle, did, it was a, the subtitle uh, of your uh, book is po- John McCain, complete abysmal failure of a human being who should. No, yeah. no? that's not what the subtitle was. Hmm. It was the myth no, of Maverick, it was, which is not, uh, not a good subtitle. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, John, it was, it was uh, John McCain and the myth of the Holocaust. Which I thought was a little, <laughs> yes. why did Boom, you do there that? There it is. Why? Bingo. I, I literally, uh, I literally did that on purpose. So we would have a reference to that, Thank you uh, to get the bingo. Uh, yeah, because in the bingo, uh, these are the jokes, people. Come on, sorry. Uh, McCain's eighty, and he's uh, that eighty has taken uh, more mileage than most of us. He spent five years, after all, in the Hanoi Hilton, or at least in captivity in Vietnam, and and the first uh, half of that was brutal, and that's really why he can't, you know, lift his arm above yeah. his yeah. shoulder length and can't comb his own hair and a bunch of other things like that. Uh, walks with a limp, these types of things. Um, he outlived. His namesake, father and grandfather, both of whom were admirals in the Navy, um, I mean, his, his father was literally prosecuting the uh, Navy's war in Vietnam when he was the uh, uh, held uh, uh, captive. And uh, refused, there, refused to, think to, about. to be released, by the way. There was an offer, a Vietnamese offer, correct? Yes. Um, and so, uh, no. I mean, they, they knew they had a high value target and yeah. they uh, and they dangled first so that he would lose his honor. And then they also eventually broke him like they broke all, but I think two prisoners of a war there at some point broke down and like recorded confessions. So yeah. whenever you hear some idiot say, Oh, he, you know, he just, uh, mm-hmm. he, had, he, he confessed and he, uh, you know, made a terrible tape. Everybody did. Uh, you would too, if you got tortured and I'm looking at you, Camille, mostly, uh, since you would just cry like a little bitch, no, but um, I would literally make a, a confession <laughs> if like they took away like my bowl of ramen noodles that I'm going to eat when I get home tonight with, with Drew's Bushmills, glass of Bushmills and some spicy Sriracha ramen noodles. And they took them away. 
I'd be like, I've seriously, I love the Khmer Rouge. Can I have my noodles Just back? take it to Sriracha would be enough. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't That's this. not convincing enough, though. I, I get tired. I'm just, you know, I, look at, I know um, two of his children well, and I, and, and, and that's, you know, stuff that people that you come across from work and all these things. And, and they're very, very sweet. And I, and, and I could give a shit about politics when I see something like that. And it's a terrible thing to happen to someone. And I hope it gets better. He, um, nice. I, I regret that he ran for reelection just because he was old. I mean, he's, he's yeah. outlived, uh, his namesakes by a lot. And at some point, like, Hey, pretty, pretty good life. Well lived, even if he's pushed for things, especially in the last 15 years or so that I vehemently disagree with. And I don't agree with his general ideology out there, but the man has lived a life in full. And, uh, and every time that he has to run for reelection in Arizona, it's usually then that he engages in completely non-believable, uh, policy postures, for, I mean, go go on Google and, and or YouTube and look at, you know, are, are you saying that we should build the dang fence? Let's just complete the dang fence. Like he went immigration nativist very insincerely for about six months before the 2010 election in an embarrassing way. Um, he's always been someone who sort of distrusts, dislikes and would be scared of if they had power over him. The Republican base, which in Arizona is a much different Republican base, even than where you get in most places. Um, so I, I was worried uh, in many senses that he's just uh, hung around for too long. It was going to embarrass himself. All of that said, um, he's not the worst person to have in the United States Senate in the Republican Party in an age of Donald Trump. Well, that's true. Um, he did uh, not because necessarily I agree with him about whether, you know, Montenegro should be in NATO. In fact, I disagree with him and I think agree with Donald Trump, although I don't think that Trump said anything to that effect. But uh, generally, McCain wants everybody in NATO and I think that's too fast. But because he has spent his 80th year, and when I'm 80, if I'm ever 80, it's not gonna be traveling around the world trying to reassure uh, America's traditional allies that we're not an insane country. But that's what uh, McCain has been doing uh, constantly um, and not always in a you know camera hogging way that you normally see him in an American context when he's on all the Sunday shows. Um, he's actually been working hard at this thing. His notion of integrity and honor and all this kind of stuff, which he will be the first to tell you that he has violated. He confesses this stuff um, and which you can criticize him for. But uh, I've come to appreciate more, not just with him, but in life. I would much rather have someone who you could say that person's a hypocrite than someone who just says there's no use caring in the first place about any of these notions of honor, integrity, screw it, the whole system's messed up. Hmm. I, I appreciate in these times someone who uh, has that sense of integrity. And I think even though I disagree with him about a hell of a lot, uh, he is someone who at least tries to have that integrity. And that's important. Wow. Yeah. Well, I say this, the final point in this and just on people, I don't want to pronounce Senator McCain as having slid off his mortal coil yet. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty bad uh, brain cancer that he has, but you know, it, it's interesting now. I mean, you get the, people think it's very brave to make this point. You know, when you die, all the shitty things you do should be brought to the surface. It's, it's, it's like this embarrassing tradition that we say nice things about people and respect for the dead is overrated. Yeah. I, look, I get that. But you know, when you have people that you know who die who are public figures and, and say things that are controversial, um, do things that are controversial, politicians that make controversial decisions. 
I, you know, the ease at which people, with which people can say these things these days on Twitter and stuff. And I remember like, you know, this person, you know, fuck him, he's dead. And I have written a lot of anti-obits in my life. <laughs> and I've, been, I've had a lot of go-to anti-obits. But, you know, Twitter, every time I see this, I, I haven't seen it since I saw this announcement of, of what um, Senator McCain was diagnosed with. And it just, I, it's not really a surprise because he was, he was lingering in the hospital a lot longer than people thought. Uh, but I just find it, you know, I try to, I, I, I've, I haven't done an anti-obit in a while. I try to do that in a sort of clarifying way. Like there's another way. It's mm-hmm. if there's mm-hmm. too much hagiography, yeah. you know, and I think that there is, you know, when, when someone like McCain or George W. Bush or somebody who's gotten, you know, a lot of hate, some of it justified, maybe some of it not. I don't want to prosecute those. Usually, either usually of those cases. a little bit of both. Yeah, usually a little bit of both. But there's, there's this thing where people think they're being especially kind of uh, like, I, I don't agree with the saccharine kind of stuff. And it's come to the point now that it's the rote default position is to do that kind of obit on somebody like John McCain or somebody like, is to say that this person is a controversial figure and I'm going to dig it all out. I've said this, I don't know if, and again, I have so much of the stuff that I don't, I've talked to you guys about, and I don't know if I, if we talk about it on the show is the pick the person who is like a sort of a famous person that will be uh, pilloried and vilified in death. And you didn't realize it like David Bowie, when he died, people were mm. like, you know, he raped 15 year olds, which isn't true, but, but there's a lot of stories out there. Uh, when God, there's another one recently, so-and-so dies, they make some comment, you dig up, you go trawling through the garbage of their life. Mm-hmm. And then you write that piece, usually for the daily B stories to work. And usually that halfwit Amy Zimmerman, do you know, this person is really, um, we shouldn't celebrate them because in 1968, uh, they said colored or something sure. when, when it was the nomenclature of the time. And I just, there's that instinct now in death to, to, to destroy people. I, I think that my, uh, theory these days after writing, I think we're, we're anti-obits that were hopefully informative was not to go, Hey, you know, Eric Clapton had a concert in 1979 where he got super drunk and talked about quote unquote wogs and said mm-hmm. that there should be no immigration in the UK, which is actually true. And I guarantee you the hot takes would be sizzling when Eric Clapton dies and it'll that, be like, don't forget in death, he was a great guy, but he's also a racist. He did that one thing. That yeah, one and I look, John McCain is a very different thing because he's a politician. Mm-hmm. And in death, you do, you know, we know of John McCain because of his political record. And that's completely fair game. But I, I always wince when I turn, um, turn Twitter on when somebody, you know, who's like slightly controversial died. I just, it's just boring. It's people, you know, being brave in a, in a, in a very non-brave way. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Does no, that make any I, sense? I, I totally. I'm kind of I, just ranting now. No, no, I totally, I totally understand. I, I think it's, it is decidedly different from uh, something that I saw uh, on Hannity and Combs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Combs also passed away recently. No, he um, did. And yeah, I, he did. He had brain, like, sort of brain cancer too. But right? Hitch was on a tear going after uh, Reverend Falwell um, after he had passed. Um, and this is, I think, must have been the day of. Day of. Um, and <laughs> yeah. Hitch was ripping him, yeah. um, calling him hateful, uh, yeah. and yeah. Ref- specifically um, highlighting the 9/11. time that he uh, yeah. talked about 9-11. And uh, we mentioned this last week, I think. 
was essentially crediting the gays um, and the sinful yeah. nation for bringing this hell upon itself. Um, That's just a bad person at that so, point. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, of course, although, this is although not Hannity a, said, but he apologized for that multiple times. I, I don't, um, you know, and, he, and got, he says he didn't, didn't he, believe him. Yeah. Well, he shouldn't have. I mean, yeah. the, he had a television show and he had a, he has a, you know, the tin cup out and like fill, fill my coffers so I can keep my church in the 700 club going. He has a vested interest in not seeming like somebody who's, who's, who's a hate monger, despite the fact that I think he was at times. And, and, you know, it's also not an admonition for, for people to be, you know, have some sort of a quality of praise for people who were shitty, you know, and I think it's probably beyond that with, with, with Falwell, but you know, it's not, it's not when somebody, you know, Oliver Stone, you know, gets hit by a, a truck or something and say, you know, he was really a great film. No, he wasn't a great filmmaker and he had a lot of bad ideas and you're perfectly willing, welcome to say that. But I, I do, I remember when you're talking about Christopher, he died, this woman, uh, what is it, Anna Sarkeesian or something? She like became famous on the Gamergate thing, which I still don't understand, by the way. I have no idea what this is about. I mm -hmm. thought it was the name of a video game. <laughs> um, and it was like, so you have, to get, you have to get some sort of gate and inside there's yeah. like feminists or something? Nope. I don't know. That's, but, <laughs> that's not what it is? That's not what it is? No. Okay. No, we usually get this discursive at the end of the podcast. Yeah, no, I'm just this confused. But no, this, it's but, good. But, but, it's about ethics it's and gaming Fucking Drew in the Bushmill. Um, but he, she said something like, I'm glad he's dead. Like stuff like that I just don't think yeah. is acceptable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But but we what were we talking about? <laughs> we were we were we were gonna we're talk about, about the uh, the healthcare. And, and yeah. Republican healthcare and, legislation, which Matt, you've written about this this week. I don't know if there was anyone um who was bemoaning this missed opportunity to have Donald Trump finally uh repeal Obamacare and replace it with something that seems a lot like Obamacare, but maybe had that uh that Senator Cruz freedom amendment. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on what the hell um, happened here and uh, whether or not Trump has any opportunity to, to actually make another go at this and would it actually be better the next go around? Uh, well, there are people who lament uh, this from a uh, conservative Republican point of view. I can, I think name both of them. Uh, Hugh Hewitt, the MSNBC host. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Also, uh, Avik Roy, who's the single, uh, you know, free market conservative side uh, uh, health policy analyst out there who, who was defending this. All the other ones that I saw, Michael Cannon from Cato, Peter Suderman uh, from a journalistic point of view, uh, and others uh, have said, and I think rightly so, that this is um, – about as bad, if not worse than because it cements into place uh, some of the prospects or the the structures of Obamacare, um, that it was this compromise uh, that uh, that an attempt to compromise over the fact that the Republican caucus, both in the House and the Senate, if we're being honest about it, um, actually just don't agree with one another about what to do about health policy in this country. Um, the people who've been saying for seven years that they want to repeal and replace Obamacare have been lying, the vast majority of them. They don't want to do that. They're afraid of what that looks like because mm -hmm. what that means is that you're going to have to take away something that has been given, or you can put given in quotes, if you prefer to be cynical about it, uh, to people um, you basically change the status that they have right now in a way that they might not like. That is the ultimate thing that politicians of both parties are terrified. And I would point to 
um, uh, including in that list, uh, Democrats in 2009 2010, they were terrified of changing the original sin in health policy, which is tying health insurance to employment, which everybody, everybody who looks at this issue says that's the problem. That's the original sin because that it came about as an artifact of World War II era wage wage freezes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So like this is a way for employers to get around it. Um, And so it kind of creates this bizarre thing where there's third parties involved in the pricing of stuff. And Michael did a great segment on Vice News that uh, that got at a lot of this. He was walking around getting his just disease ridden body (laughs) checked at by streets. Yeah. Hilarious. Hilarious. yeah, I mean, I just in my defense, uh, you know, I wasn't setting out to make the definitive health care piece. No, no, I didn't, I didn't think it so. It was hilarious. It was, it was so. the definitive uh, Moynihan reaction shot piece. Yeah. yeah. Sort of. <laughs> Depending on what, how close like to, to your genitals they were fishing. Oh, but uh, no, a but things the, that were a little the, kind of an, an, an understated uh, point of all of that is that uh, two big takeaways besides the, the comical uh, uh, facial uh, expressions. One is that Michael asks every single time, uh, how much does this cost? And they're like, ah, they do the shrug emoji from Twitter. Like, ah, yeah, yeah, no I don't really know how to say. No and and, and if they know, started the- to actually break it break it down, um, it, it they would say that the man, money that they get doesn't get anywhere near how much mm-hmm. that the procedure costs. That was one takeaway. And the second takeaway was that um, I think one of the doctors said that uh, the amount of bureaucracy since the advent of, Ob- of Obamacare went from being like 10 percent of how much of their workflow to 40 percent. And yet all of them, because yeah. he was in New York, obviously, yeah. all of them's like, yeah, that's why we need to do single payer. Yeah, you know, no, there's in one of the doctors, down. by the way, just in the I mean, again, these pieces are always short. And you have to cut a lot of stuff out. Um, and, you know, you can put some stuff up on the Web. And the ones I chose to do that were just me being tortured as opposed to <laughs> substantive things. But the one thing that was interesting that we didn't get into it was um, was kind of tort reform stuff, um, you know, because everybody gets too many procedures because doctors are afraid of being sued. So to prevent mm. themselves of being sued, they order lots of things that in ordinary situations in other countries they probably wouldn't do. Yeah. And, and, um, and I mean, of course, they get paid for them and they, they don't want to take the money, but they, they you know, whatever. No, but I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it, it, but it's become part of habit, yeah. too, of just like, you know, this thing of like, well, let's protect ourselves and do every when, when a patient suggests something rather than um, kind of mm-hmm. I, I was at a doctor today who said to me, who referred you? I, I'd never heard this before. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what this is. And some a listener can maybe send this to me, what it is, uh, somebody who's a doctor. And I said, well, I just found you on ZocDoc on the internet. I was looking for a new endocrinologist and yeah. I, I came up here. And he said, well, you know, who's the, who's your, do you have a primary care doctor? And I said, I do. And he said, what's this doctor's name? I gave the doctor's name and he said, you know, good, thank you. Give me the name because I get paid more for it. Or I, get, mm-hmm. I get more for this. And I didn't, I, I was yeah, as uncomfortable as I always am at doctors. I didn't dwell on it and ask him about it. Mm-hmm. He was a bit weird anyway. Mm-hmm. But that I thought was fairly interesting. Is all these little rackets because, yeah. because doing a piece on healthcare, what I just, what I discovered is somebody, this is not my bailiwick. This is not what I write about and what I've ever listened, you know, read about or cared about books here and there. But it, it's so tremendously complicated that it becomes eye glazing. And when, when I yes. was talking to a woman who's, who did billing yeah. mm-hmm. and we didn't have her in the piece, but she, if, you know, if single payer, and this is actually not true because you have to basically just do the same thing with the government rather than with insurance companies, what her dream world was, 
was all this stuff would go away and basically she would eliminate her own job because they hire somebody just to interface with the insurance companies, nine different insurance companies, and they have to do nine different things. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I just fight insurance companies all day. That's my job. Because yeah. they want to give us the bare minimum. They want to say this isn't covered, that's not covered. <laughs> and it was just so overwhelming and baffling to hear it all. And it was like this this fog of acronym and like, you know, this, that, and, that, and I couldn't believe it. But one of the things I did think was 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 interesting was that the doctor, the male doctor who was really beating me up. <laughs> uh, and I will say we didn't not, we, we didn't include this, not because it was not good, but it was just, it was too long and detailed of an answer, but he actually opposed single pair and said, because, you know, just the basic thing is like, if you think the bureaucracy now is bad, you know, it's the PJ Rook quote. No, the, if, the, you, if you think mm -hmm. healthcare is expensive now, wait until it's free. Yeah, the editor made a terrible decision because that I think that would have been a really useful No, it was, I, we tried. We really did try. And, Should have uh, tried it, harder, God. It was it. really a long, I mean, yeah. you have a guy, right. he was from Grenada, by the way, and uh -huh. he was great. Tell. And we talked about Maurice Bishop and the new jewel movement as he was <laughs> punching my jewels. Yeah. And, uh, and, but he was really, he, he also had a degree in public policy from Columbia hmm. and he thought about it in a very interesting way, but it was a very circuitous way of getting to it. You, but, usually I, I find that a lot of people don't think deeply about, um, healthcare, especially he specifically did, yeah. healthcare economics, because it is one of those things that is, uh, non-obvious, uh, as opposed no. to counterintuitive because most of the time it's, it's not a situation where it's different than you think about it it's that you don't really want to think about it as you were saying it's it's eye glazing and i think this is how we create these uh we have so many sacred orders for conservatives yeah, the police yeah. are are one of those sacred orders uh journalists are becoming a sacred order for some people right now mostly the left um and doctors are certainly a sacred order who pr pr they are practitioners of a mysterious craft that people don't understand. You don't even want to think about the money involved. You don't want to think about the complexity of the decision you're being asked to make. You just want them to tell you, just tell you what to do. And quite frankly, there's all manner of danger hmm. once you indulge in that sort of fantasy, um, both because you're not thinking about the services you're getting, you're outsourcing your critical faculties um, to these people. Um, and there's, there's a lot of spillover effects. I think that's part of the reason why preventable medical injuries are so um, astonishingly high in this country. So tort reform is, is interesting. I know that doctors prefer it as a solution and conservatives often talk about it a lot as a possible remedy for controlling costs. State lines and but tort reform. I, yeah. I think state lines make sense, allowing people they to purchase- It don't make sense, but it's, it, allow, it, it, how much of a dent is it? Well, make? I'm saying that, that allowing people to purchase health insurance in an actual market across state lines makes sense to me. Tort reform, on the other hand, like actually, and, and to be clear, capping the award that someone can get um, and limiting the specific instances in which people can get money when they uh, believe they've been injured by a doctor- Yeah. Um, I don't think that is a solution. I think that is actually a part of the problem. The fact of the matter is that there are already extensive caps in virtually every state and city and municipality in the union, and they're different. Um, and it's already a very bad situation sure. for patients who are actually harmed by doctors. Um, it is difficult to actually take them to trial. In many cases, you're suing the doctor, the hospital, the nurses union. There's only one of you and you're one attorney. And they're probably going to settle for something below the limit of their insurance. Um, their insurance is expensive. Uh, part of the reason, however, is because they keep having things go wrong. 
um, which is not dissimilar from uh, why universal health care would likely be a very expensive thing, uh, because if everyone could shop in the grocery store for free, because it's all just universally available, um, very soon the grocery store might be uh, empty, filthy, and all manner of other things, and perhaps the quality of the produce would fall off, um, which is not to say it never works anywhere for some period of time. Um, obviously, it could, um, but it's certainly not a panacea. Look, I mean, the one thing about European healthcare, and I know Matt, Matt got a lot of stick, and, and you can talk about it, and I think you've talked about it before, when a long time ago he wrote something in defense of French healthcare, which was mm-hmm. which is like, how dare you wander off the reservation? I remember that, yeah. But it was a smart and nuanced piece, and people who read beyond the headline would understand that. But, you know, the one thing that frustrates me, and I hate to talk in uh, about European healthcare. It's very, very different from country to country. But one of the things that when I hear somebody say, you know, the NHS, we have, we have universal healthcare and it's great. And everyone, you know, after people who hated the NHS, after um, the NHS was brought into the Obamacare debate, all were changing their Twitter avatars. I love the NHS. Uh, that was like a big thing. Mm-hmm. And these are people that maybe had had problems with the NHS in the past. But the the interesting thing about it is that, we talk about this with um, this broad strokes. And, I, and, 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 you know, the right and the left both do this. But when it comes to European healthcare, it works so great. There, there's so much nuance to this stuff that where it works great and where it doesn't work great. I had to recount today how I was, when I was um, diagnosed with diabetes, and I was diagnosed with diabetes about 12, 13 years ago in Sweden, hmm. in the Swedish healthcare uh, system which um, Swedish doctors are fantastic, but I didn't see them very much. I had a doctor um, the first day, and then I had a series of nurses who didn't really speak uh, English, which is not, they shouldn't have to because they're in Sweden, but they didn't also really speak uh, Swedish very well either. Mm. Um, Mostly Iraqi nurses, lovely people, incredibly sweet, but... Um, you know, and when I went to get blood drawn for my, you know, any diabetic out there will know A1C levels, there was a very, very, very small window and a lot of time on like a Wednesday at like 730 in the morning and everyone would be jammed into this little office at one hospital in your region. And if you can deal with that, that's fine. And as it has been pressured and taxed by the number of migrants that have come into the country. So I've always said this, when you talk about immigration in Europe these days, you talk about healthcare. You don't talk about migration because it's not worth it. Uh, people get in trouble for this. You get called all sorts of names, and some people deserve to be called those names. Others don't. But when I was in Austria covering the presidential election there, uh, the Freedom Party, the far right party, any of the F- FPO voters that I talked to, they would always talk about healthcare. You know, our healthcare services, right? And then you realize halfway through, oh, we're talking about we're talking about immigration because they're being taxed, and uh, you know, and I mean that. In a, they're being stressed, not they're being taxed quite a bit too. But all these people coming in are, and they're really, really screwing up our system. And that becomes the proxy for so many other policies when it comes to immigration. And all of these systems are very different. So anyone talks to you about European healthcare, well, where and how? Because some's very, very some of it's very, very good, and some of it is, eh, you know, okay, and some of it's really not working um, at all at the moment. I would say. That if you want to look at what's going on at the NHS, go to the Guardian, which is which is a left leaning uh, paper, and just go to their tag for NHS, and there's all sorts of really really interesting stories about how the the, the kind of crisis of the NHS. Hmm. It doesn't mean that the NHS isn't a system that one should have in the UK. 
I object to every time one goes to a dinner party or goes out with friends and there's people you don't know there and they don't know your politics and they're talking to you about this stuff. And they talk about the American healthcare debate in someone sometime during that evening will always fall back on the rote thing that why can't we do it like Europe? And it's like, eh, there's, you know, look, if you knew what you're talking about, that would actually not be a bad point and we could debate the sort of sub points of it. Mm -hmm. But the broader thing of Europe in general, eh, I don't know. Uh, it's it, it's 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 there's, very complicated, uh, sim simplified. But Matt knows a lot about this stuff. I know. There's a. Uh, uh, it's actually what's it's interesting to see what the policy outcomes are like that are are here in this country, uh, especially on the left in this climate. There's it's we haven't had a uh, a moment that has been more publicly favorable toward single payer systems or Medicare for all things like that. Um, and uh, it's amazing because this is happening concurrently with attempts to do that that have abjectly failed. Vermont, it's already went down the rabbit hole, but in 2014, Vermont passed single payer, right? We as federalists, some of us, or everyone's is sort of a, uh, a uh, inconsistent, uh, incoherent uh, federalist on some level. But generally speaking, we should like to have policy experiments on the state and local level, including with, hey, Vermont, if you want to try single payer, good mm -hmm. on you. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to have a bunch of different experiments out there. Well, they tried. In 2014, they passed it. The governor was enthusiastic. He signed it. Ready to go. We're Vermont, the state of Bernie Sanders. And right before it was supposed to kick in, they looked at the books and said, oh, shit. Are you kidding me? Um, you can't do it. It's too expensive. California right now, uh, it's being talked about now in California, New York, largely as kind of blue state uh, reactions to the discussions in Washington and to Donald Trump and the other kind of stuff. And so um, just like they did with, you know, fracking a legislation in New York and with like $15 minimum wages, suddenly they're speeding in the blue states to try to get to single payer as soon as possible. There was uh, just a couple of months back, um, a pretty good comprehensive study uh, done by non-libertarian humans on how much uh, the proposed uh, California version of single payer would cost. Um, it would double the current cost of the entire California government at minimum. California spends about 100 billion, give or take, a year. This would be like 200, maybe 250 billion a year just for this insurance thing. So it's remarkable to watch uh, people say, okay, that's what we really need a single payer. And then when it gets close to happening and you get some actuaries and, and, and economists looking at these things who don't necessarily have an agenda, they're actually just like in the enactment phase, they're going, oh shit, this cannot possibly happen. So I'm afraid that in the wake of all of this, not only do we have an existing Obamacare situation, which is um, uh, becoming pretty dire in a lot of parts of the country where you only have one insurance provider left, in some places none, as far as I know, um, and the exchanges that were set up by Obamacare are just are generally uh, uh, failures. I mean, the vast majority of them have, have been closed down. Um, so you have this deteriorating system, but the politics of it are also deteriorating. Where on the Republican side, uh, there's just an entire flight from reality and, and an inability to agree with one another. And on the Democratic side, there's this long flirtation with systems and ideas that just ab actually cannot work. Yeah. So I don't know how that resolves itself. Hopefully into well, experiments I, I can, yeah. on yeah, a local I, level just, and not grand national projects, because we can't do that very well. And, and, and just to bring it back to that, that inevitable European argument, which again is complex, 
But uh, on the day that 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 I did the first part of that shoot for the healthcare piece, I was I was in the car and I was looking on the Guardian app. And again, it's really interesting because it is the Guardian. It's not the Telegraph. It's not the Times. It's sort of right of center papers. And I'll just read the headline and the subhead of the piece that I saw that day. This is from, um, um, oh, actually, I, yeah, I was a day late. It was July 4th. I did this on July 5th. Doctors forced to plead with NHS for treatments for patients, BMJ fines. That's a British, uh, British medical journal. The subhead is growing healthcare rationing means GPs are having to submit exceptional requests for treatments, including cataract removals and new hips and knees. And that's just the kind of thing. And one of the doctors said to me, is like, you know, it's not it's not a dystopian, you know, nightmare scenario to say that we're going to have uh, rationing is just going to be the way it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one other thing about healthcare, and my only other comment on this and, and, and paying attention to this quite a bit today, Matt said something that I, 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 have, I always say is that when I need to go to somebody who has, you know, a brain um, who I disagree with and is, is reflexively a Trump supporter, it's probably Hugh Hewitt, you know, because it's not, he's not one of these Ann Coulter types. I mean, he's, you know, he's a law professor. He's not a dummy, but he's really got on the Trump train, despite the fact that Trump during the campaign said he was like a loser with like a low rated <laughs> show. He apparently is fine with that now. But, you know, he went on a rampage today because I listened to it on the way the subway up here. Say, who is he going to blame? blame Mike Lee, Rand Paul, mm -hmm, you guys, mm -hmm. and of course, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. But you guys are all traitors and you gave us you're giving us Obamacare forever. And there is a certain amount of truth to that. You, it's very hard to take away, you know, uh, an, an entitlement or, or, or a giveaway that sure that, that you know, just I mean, it doesn't happen. The Republicans certainly weren't doing that. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they weren't doing that. But he's going on and like, you, you know, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And these people are just, you know, he was going off on Mike Lee. You wouldn't come on my show to speak. That's what he said. And he mm -hmm. went on from this thing, which I thought was pretty interesting because he said, I had a fundraiser for Mike Lee. I called, I think it's Con Carroll, who's uh, Mike, Mike Lee's uh, comms guy, and said, I called That's him correct. and he wouldn't do this and he wouldn't do that. And he wouldn't put Mike Lee on the show. He, Mike Lee was, was, was pimping some book, but he wouldn't even come on my show, despite the fact that I raised money for him. He wouldn't even talk about it. Hmm. And I was listening to that as I was just sitting on the subway and I said, God, if you were to extend that a little further and say, look, if that's true, then Mike Lee should have come on and talked about it and debated it. But when you think back, Barack Obama, during the Obamacare buildup, gave how many addresses? 30, 40, 50, 60? About the importance, the necessity, the mechanics, whether he's talking about it in a way that was transparent and mm -hmm. what was going to happen. You can keep your doctor if you want to, et cetera. We all know that. But he was out well, there. There's no question about it. He, yeah. he was not being transparent. He was, he was not. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but he was out there stumping for it. I'm huh? not saying that one should be, you know, holding him up and saying, well, was he accurate about all these things? He's a politician. They're lying all the time. Mm -hmm. But he was out there selling it and stumping for it. Hugh Hewitt is ripping Mike Lee for not coming on a show to defend his position of toss, tossing out the Senate version of this of this bill. Never mentioning that Donald Trump did nothing. Do you remember Donald Trump getting up and defending this full throated? He can't. He's incapable of doing it. He doesn't. I mean, his opinions on health care have vacillated and shifted so much over the past three, four months. God knows what the guy believes. But if you three, four days, three, Michael, four days, four separate 
positions it, you know, since this thing failed. It's and the, the current the current position being uh, just let Obamacare fail, which is yeah, that's going to be he's, he's graduated from that yeah. one. That, but, was, but, that was like yeah, that was oh, that was, yeah, yeah, was, was like, twenty four hours, forty eight minutes ago. <laughs> but you know, I mean, this is Republicans have to think about this too. Is like you know, not a lot of these people. I mean, uh, what's his name in, in Nevada? People that are coming up for election eighteen months, but mm-hmm. not a lot of them, and a lot of them unopposed. But still doing that and saying, hey. Let's just let it fail. Let's take away insurance from people. Mm -hmm. Whether or not this is a good idea, whether or not this is the best uh, type of coverage, whether or not it's an enormously high deductible and an enormous monthly cost, still those numbers are not good. Just saying, I am not going to, they didn't just say we're going to repeal it, we're going to repeal and replace. Seven plus years of figuring this out. Donald Trump can't unite people doesn't go out and defend it, doesn't go out and say, this is why we need this. Well, it's probably for the best if he actually wants it to pass because he's not a very good champion. For, Precisely. For this much, is, for this is why Donald Trump as a reckless force of good is nonsense. Because you uh, do the, need... You mean the, reckless force of deliberate good? No, a reckless force who produces good by producing gridlock. It's not good for the Republican Party in any way that Donald Trump can't articulate basic things. Well, it is good if bad legislation like this um, doesn't get enacted, which may in fact make things worse. I I totally I I completely agree. And I'm only saying from the from the perspective of the Republican Party Mm -hmm. that might see itself in the next midterms and in the next presidential election limping yeah. back to the dugout <laughs> to try to figure out what happened and how to go forward. Well, well, there's something. One, one part of this, uh, I'm sorry, Camille, one last quick, quick thing, just that it does put uh, uh, a new, the kind of uh, lie to the great man theory of uh, Trump himself and uh, not inconsiderable number of his supporters. Remember, he said repeatedly, like, I'm the guy who knows how to fix this. I can this. get things done. Yeah. In, in general, and also about this specific legislation, I can do it. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. Uh, and then, of course, he finds out that it's a lot harder than he thought, and he can't get this thing done. It sets up this unreasonable, uh, reasonable expectation of deal making, of but of, of just kind of great man. And when you believe subscribe to great man theory of politics, bad things happen to the polity and to government in general because those are people who tend to kind of lunge recklessly towards some bits of power and of more of a kind of a cult of personality than uh, the kind of institutional governance that uh, I think is better served even in a, you know, crappy post great country like ours. Well, maybe we pivot from, from this uh, legislative uh, calamity uh, failure, at least on the part of the Trump administration to perhaps a future uh, legislative failure. Oh, I thought you were going to say OJ masturbating. Yeah. (laughs) That's coming. We can talk about that. That was not a double entendre, Uh, (laughs) but but that will be talked about soon. Sure. (laughs) Not, Um, it's coming. (laughs) Sorry. um, I think he was caught. I don't think he finished. (laughs) Um, so <laughs> apparently, um, I was a little surprised, uh, to actually read about this. I, I perhaps should not be. Um, but the, uh, Politico had a story about the Trump administration. Uh, it says Trump crafting plan to slash legal immigration, uh, having already taken the, on the travel ban, uh, the, the peers, um, and the, it opens with this line that I love Donald Trump and his aides are quietly working with two conservative senators to dramatically scale back immigration. Um, One, this administration does nothing quietly. They do not have the capacity to do things in secret. Um, They are um, 
working with uh, the the wonderful Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas and David Perdue, Georgia, um, and trying to pass a piece of legislation that would actually curtail uh, legal immigration into this country, not illegal immigration, to get their numbers down uh, because they believe um, that by so doing, they will increase American wages because they will limit competition for American jobs. Um, and this isn't only about uh, low-skill jobs. This is also about uh, curtailing uh, some of the things that have made it possible for talented people to come to this country uh, and to work and produce things in this in this country. This is another place where sort of economic um, economic ignorance, uh, I think, uh, proliferates broadly. And for plenty of people who are not necessarily going to think about this too hard, um, it stops it. Well, yeah, I mean, if they're if they're not coming here, taking our jobs. Um, then we will see the our wages improve, and that's necessarily a good thing. Um, uh, the, the dynamics are a little more complicated than that, um, but of course, um, Stephen Miller uh, and Steve Bannon uh, are are apparently uh, lending their support to this. Um, there's a, another sort of mention in the article of uh, Steve Bannon, uh, the the chief strategist of the White House, who has. Uh, several promises to limit immigration scribbled on the wall of his office. Very, very committed to this issue um, in a way that, again, for me, just given the 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 realities um, of immigrants and and what it means when people come to this country, especially skilled people, not especially skilled people, all all people, both skilled and unskilled, um, come to this country to work. Um, there are advantages. It's not merely a matter of substituting immigrant labor for American labor. Um, the Productivity of the economy expands. There is uh, something called uh, complements um, and substitutes. And in many cases, immigrant labor can be a complement to domestic labor and actually increase uh, not only total output, but create opportunities for wages to expand as well. Um, And I'm personally invested in this because when my grandmother came to this country um, not too long ago, um, she wasn't particularly skilled. She was cleaning an embassy. Um, and she brought along with her Jamaican embassy. Yeah, uh, no, uh, Senegalese embassy. Actually, mm-hmm. um, it's an interesting story there, but I won't tell it now. Um, but my um, grandmother brought along all of her kids. Got a bunch of them: uh, five girls, four boys, and in some cases, they had kids. And my mom was pregnant with me. Um, I don't know that anyone would look at sort of my grandmother's and her progeny and immediately think, oh, you know, their prospects are going to be great. They're going to contribute all sorts of enormously fantastic things to this country. Um, but I'm here mm. and you all are, are better for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, as, yeah. as am I, because damn it, uh, every single time I've gone back to Jamaica, I like go through and I say back because I visited again, not because I'm from there. Um, right. Yeah, but yeah. every single time I've gone and I've like seen kids hanging out in Kingston, I, I think to myself, dude, that could be you. In, uh, in, a more elegant in, person yeah. might have said something about the grace of God and yeah. therefore uh, I didn't want to do that. But that could be me. Yeah, you um, would not be with those $7,000 sneakers <laughs> in Tivoli kind of hanging around. Not 7000 yeah. and, and I'm actually yeah. wearing my uh, my custom We the Fifth uh, slides right now. So at any rate, I've, uh, <laughs> I've, I've pontificated perhaps enough on this uh, on this thing. I don't know if anyone else wants to, to weigh in on this. Yeah. Could be legislation. Can we talk about OJ masturbating now? <laughs> just really trying to get to that. Maybe. Matt, do you have anything on immigration before we talk about uh, the juice? 
None of it is a surprise, particularly the we need to cut legal. No, he's in prison. Uh, Why would it be a surprise? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what would you do? Yeah. Oh, he's I mean, talking I would about healthcare. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You no, know, not, not healthcare sorry. even. Immigration. Uh, no, oh, it's just they. This this was in the. Remember the first uh, and one of the only policy papers, white papers, to come out mm-hmm. of the Trump campaign in 2016, which I think we've learned since then has been was co-written by Ann Coulter, so you knew it was intellectually serious. Um, was the uh, white paper on immigration, and that uh, said that we needed to cut um, the number of legal uh, visas, which is just the total opposite approach than. Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush took when they talked about uh, illegal – the problem of illegal immigration back in the 1980 uh, Republican primary campaign. They both saw it as fundamentally a problem of prohibition and that if we stop making so many things illegal, um, that's the best way to uh, reduce the uh, illegal population and we should just think about things differently. This turns that all on its ear. Um, they advertise with this. This is what they let on. And there are a number of, uh, of uh, politicians in Washington, chief among them Jeff Sessions before, but now Tom Cotton, who uh, before we all forget, he's now a uh, kind of an important Trump ally. But in 2014, uh, which is when he came into the Senate, he was Bill Crystal's then a biggest protege as kind of a new wave of real conservatives, unlike those fake Rand Paul Mike Lee types. That's going to be a nice hawk on defense, and he's going to keep uh, Guantanamo Bay open until the uh, you know you know the third millennia, and uh, and he's going to be good on all these other kinds of things. He's terrible. He's you know he's talked about uh, uh, you know the problem with criminal justice reform is that we need more people in jail and this kind of stuff. Hmm. So thank you, Bill Crystal. Helped a lot uh, in your never Trump crusade, getting an absolute fuckwit like Tom Cotton in the Senate. Great. It worked well for everybody. So this is a uh, part and parcel of what they tried to do. They've done it with refugees. We're going to accept fewer refugees this year at a time when refugees are at the highest level since they've been since World War II. And that was a bad time, World War II. Um, and uh, it's just spiked up more than 60 percent the last five years. We're taking the fourth lowest number of refugees this year um, than we have since the modern time of uh, record keeping on this kind of stuff. This is what they do. This is what they believe. Um, I am someone who's uh, been uh, uh, applauding the Trump administration on a lot of its deregulatory activities uh, throughout the executive branch, which I think are very interesting. However, there is uh, one of the biggest categories of regulation that you can do on a human being is can they move? Can they work? Can they do stuff? Are you really going to throw them in a meat locker uh, for an extended period of time and deport them to countries in many cases that they've never been to or haven't been to for any great length of time? Uh, the fact that this is a priority and uh, as we've seen today with Jeff Sessions, um, we are going to double down on civil asset forfeiture, which already exceeds in total value, seized the amount of money uh, taken in burglaries in this country at this point. So cops are just stealing your stuff, whether or not you yourself uh, stole it uh, as well. So uh, yeah, you can be a deregulatory president, but if you're just snatching people's legal stuff and you're also deporting people en masse and not taking in the next generation of Camille's, uh, don't sing me a song about uh, your deregulation. That ain't deregulation. That's authoritarian light. Yes. I'm not even going to try to add to that. It's fantastic. If 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 Moynihan can tolerate one one more subtle detour before we get to the juice. <laughs> um, I I have been um, obsessing over um, 
forensic science for like the past uh, five or six days. Um, Matt, you have talked about this in the past and I, you know, like a, like a good, um, concerned, uh, thoughtful libertarian sort of person. Um, I'm, I'm qualifying it in a fake sort of way for non-libertarian listeners who know this isn't a libertarian podcast. Um, but I've sort of, yeah, of course, forensic science. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that's wrong with it. Um, As of Friday of last week, um, I am terrified of the possibility of being caught in the wrong place at the wrong time when something bad happens and finding myself uh, in a situation where I'm actually facing charges uh, for a crime and they are trying to uh, uh, get me for it using uh, this this mythical thing uh, called forensic science. Reason, uh, actually, Matt, had two really great pieces recently, um, one of which um, was, I believe it's an excerpt from a, a forthcoming book, uh, the title of which was uh, DNA Evidence uh, Frees the Innocent. Um, and it is effectively the early story of the, the discovery of DNA fingerprinting and how it made its its way into um, the criminal justice uh, system um, and the controversy that it created when it was first introduced, and subsequently how they fixed it. Uh, the scientists actually did a great deal to fix this, as well as two uh, intrepid defense attorneys who saw the potential for DNA not merely to be used to convict people, but to be used to exonerate people who had been falsely convicted. Um, in 50% of the cases now uh, where we've seen exonerations, I think 350 to date, 350 DNA exonerations, about half of those are cases in which forensic science was misused, i.e. Uh, someone came in um, and overstated the accuracy um, of this test, or in fact, some testing was being done um, and it, it's just, it's completely fake. Uh, like bite mark analysis uh, appears to be completely fake. Um, and uh, it really is like, pretty chilling. Uh, and I, I mention it here, uh, Matt, because you mentioned Jeff Sessions, and I, I did see you know a number of pieces um, a little while ago when Jeff Sessions decided to disband the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, um, who had prepared a report on forensic science. Um, I did not see quite as many, and there were some, I didn't see quite as many about um, the Obama administration who, yes, the Obama administration cared about these issues or at least talked about them in a different sort of way. Um, But when the commission, this council, actually issued its report last year, um, the Justice Department, the Obama Justice Department, quickly issued a statement in response to the recommendations that were issued um, saying thanks, but no thanks. Shit is broken. Uh, they didn't say this, uh, <laughs> but shit is broken. We're not really going to fix it because it's fine. Everything is fine. Um, if you know anything about this at all, you, you know that it is not fine. And I, I suppose I did all of that so I could commend to you, um, Radley Balco's piece from January 4th, uh, called, uh, when Obama wouldn't fight for science, which is totally worth reading. And I think is just fantastic. Um, the, the best moment um, of it comes uh, at the end where he says uh, prominent Democrats should be reprimanding Obama and Lynch for this, um, specifically not backing the reform efforts. Democrats like to tout themselves as the party of science, usually with a dose of smug and sometimes justified condescension. 
Uh, multiple federal reports authored by preeminent scientists have now emphatically stated for years that bad science is corrupting the justice system. Among real scientists, there is little dispute about this. The first of these reports came out in 2009. Obama had seven years to do something substantive about it, and he hasn't. It was great. And that, then, and then 2009... Balco screwed it up. Um, and the last line is, <laughs> Democrats also like to tout themselves as the party of justice and equality. Um, and I, I emphasize this in my notes. The people, must, the people most affected by this problem are disproportionately poor and disproportionately black, and yet nothing. Um, of course, the takeaway there, Matt Welch being, if you got locked up, that's sad. If I got locked up, it's a tragedy. Um, it's not entirely fair, but that is the underlying sentiment, and I don't like it. Um, Get Radley on to talk, talk so about it. So yeah. Radley needs to come defend his honor. That's why I did that. And he, Radley's got a book coming out um, that uh, stems from reporting that he originally did for Reason about a uh, totally corrupt medical examiner named Stephen Hain, who worked in both Mississippi and Louisiana at oh, some he's point doing was a book taking. On that? Yeah. Oh yeah. He's been doing, I he's, been, so, he's yeah. been beating that drum for years. Uh, right. And the, uh, and uh, you know, I was the primary editor on a few of those, uh, stories for it and it's, and it's eye opener. Um, not just on the uh, shoddiness of the science, which he is right to point out, that 2009 study, that wasn't just like some thrown together thing. That was a very good blue ribbon, very long study, um, a politically uh, you know, heterodox. Um, uh, people came together. I, I talked to one of the principals on that at a, um, uh, a, an event um, of the Society for Professional Investigators uh, here in uh, New York, not that I'm here in New York because I'm in Bally's in the celebrity room, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, a couple of years ago, and he was describing his frustrations at coming up with such a good takedown of bite mark analysis, in particular hair uh, analysis is also uh, uh, fraught with things, and also uh, 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 forensic uh, like fire analysis, and that, there's a better word for all of that, um, uh, which are just fraudulent. Stephen Hayne, this guy that Radley had uh, come uh, talked about, was uh, was in some cases uh, we think even uh, possibly implanting using you know uh, uh, dental molds on uh, on dead kids' arms. We did a, a story about that for a reason. All a nightmare, but a, a lot of the stuff in there, it shows the structural problems that allow that to happen, and that's really something important to keep in mind as we get DNA, which is a better science. Um, not foolproof by any means, but uh, the all of the structures or too many of the structures in the criminal justice system are uh, set up to favor prosecutors. So in uh, the case of Stephen Hayne, and this is true in a lot of parts of the country, the uh, only local uh, medical examiner who is allowed to work with law enforcement is owned by law enforcement. Yeah, <laughs> that's their that's their boss. So, hmm, I wonder like how, you know, what the tilt is going to be on that one. They are completely set up. Uh, and then and, and when there's competition, oftentimes they go to the one who can produce the convictions. Mm -hmm. uh, the incentives are structured like that. That's a huge problem. So as DNA comes online here and as uh, it, even, you know, body cam technologies, uh, dash cam technologies, how those things, who owns the the data and who gets access to it and who doesn't? And this came up uh, this week in New York City where cops are like, yeah, you know, so we'll take care of the data 
and we'll show it when we want to and no one else gets to see. It's like, now nah, you know what? That's not really the point of having cameras on cops here, uh, pal. Um, so <laughs> it, it, it was a great uh, light to shine into that process. And a lot of criminal justice reform, I do believe strongly, would be best looking at uh, what are those systems that are in place that are corrupt at their heart, similar to how grand juries are often uh, convened, local grand juries, um, to essentially exonerate cops um, because they're set up by the local prosecutor who depends on cops to do his living. You know, there are structures to be that are in place that need to be addressed. And I think one of the, the tragedies of the Obama administration is that you had people in there, including the president, including Eric Holder, who, especially in the last two years of that presidency, started to find their courage to talk a little bit about these things and make tiny, you know, uh, steps or some steps, including uh, uh, some amount of pardoning and commutation of sentences. But all of that came in the last couple of years. They mm -hmm. couldn't really do that much. They peeled back some of civil asset forfeiture, for example, to name something that's in the news right now. But if they had been working on this diligently since 2009, they would have created so much more on the ground that would be very hard for the Jeff Sessions of the world to reverse. Instead, they were prosecuting medical marijuana in California to record degrees and all this other kind of crap that Obama did in his first term. That's a real uh, a good goddamn shame. Uh, and I hope that Radley's new book and uh, some of these discussions lead to that. But we really have wasted a lot of time. And now we have people in charge on the federal level of law enforcement uh, who have really retrograde and bad ideas that are going to uh, hurt and damage innocent people in ways that just makes my blood curl. Yeah, well, I hope to pick up on, on a few more, a few of these issues in a future dispatch, uh, special dispatch, perhaps. Um, but I'm not going to tell you any more about it than that. We'll see what happens. I think if I tell you, uh, you might mention it and, and start doing things and then it won't happen. Because do, you'll do you know? Do you know OJ was masturbating in his in his uh, prison cell? Shocking! Did we are talk you, about this? Are yet? you kidding? <laughs> I don't know. If we talked about it. <laughs> Video? Really get to that? No, it, I, it was in the Daily Mail. I mean, whoa! They're not oh, it's got to be so, true. I mean, will this have any impact on his ability uh, to get out? Apparently, this this is me doing. I, I mean, that's my best John Stossel. That's wait. So OJ killed his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was exonerated. <laughs> Well, he's um, not in jail for that. No, he's not. He's for stealing, stealing memorabilia. Well, it's his memorabilia. He was taking yeah, well, it back. I think he, somebody, he probably sold it to somebody. And then he got it back <laughs> with a gun. I don't know. But yeah, he might be. He might be out in October. That's yeah. What, uh, and John Walker Lind, by the way, might be out in a, in a year and a half. So uh, they're going to team up and do prison, an album. Yeah, I think they're going to do. They're going to do a tour mm. together, uh, <laughs> oh like at God. like local theaters. It'll be hilarious. Uh, yeah, Prisoner Zero Zero One in the War on Terror. John Walker Lind, <laughs> who, by the way. If you haven't read Graham Wood's new book, and I think I, this is, I always fear that I'm repeating myself. Uh, uh, John Walker Lind was like 20 years old when he got, he is uh, more radical than when he went in. He's like, and he's, he's uh, got, oh, really? like, yeah, he's got Irish citizenship. His, I think his grandmother was born in Donegal and he's gotten Irish citizenship in like 2013. And he, his plan is to, for the, unfortunately for the people of Ireland, he's going to move to Ireland once he's, uh, which by the way, I think is apparently a code word for Syria, but uh, he, he's planning to get out and do that. But OJ, the reason I wanted to talk about OJ, mm. um, fury, as uh, to quote uh, Martin Amos, was jackknifed over a flying fist. Uh, <laughs> and apparently this is going to, this is going to uh, affect his, uh, his uh, parole or something. 
but you know, he's in prison. I mean, good God. I mean, if he's not masturbating, I think there's probably something wrong with him. Are you, are you defending OJ? Oh, on this one, yes. Um, <laughs> because, you know, every night I'm OJ. Uh, <laughs> I am OJ. Asada taught me. OJ taught me. But, uh, but uh, no, because I told you to watch a documentary. I did. Uh, called LA 92, produced by National Geographic Films, which I thought was wonderful, which is all natural sound, is no voiceover. And it's just these archival footage of the LA riots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it starts with the sort of Rodney King beating. Um, it starts, uh, starts with the Watts riots, right? Well, well yeah, it starts yeah. with the Watts riots. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, in the modern sense, it gets quickly. It draws the, yeah. the parallel between those two. Yeah. And so what did you think about it, Camille? Um, I thought it was fantastic filmmaking. I mean, this is one of the better documentaries I've seen um, in this year, for yeah. sure. Um, and uh, a lot of the scenes are just just gripping. I remember this this thing happening. I remember seeing footage of it at the time. Um, but the 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 sort of scale of it: sixty three people dead, um, twelve thousand arrests, uh, two thousand plus injuries. Um, I mean, it's just yeah. like, shocking. Um, and all on the heels of the, the conclusion of these two court cases, um, the Latasha Harlan's uh, yeah. case and often the Rodney forgotten King about, case, by the way. which, which is often forgotten yeah. about. Yeah. Um, although, yeah. you know, watching that footage again for Latasha Harlan's of, of that shooting is just like, it's, it's, it's pretty jarring. Yeah. And you also forget that in the Latasha Harlan's situation, which uh, if, if you're not familiar with it, I, I believe she was a song about her, but yeah, 13 years old. Um, I think she, she might 15. Fi- is it 15? Yeah. I think she was 15. I, okay. I you might be that. you might be right. Um, yeah. In either case, she's young. Um, she's young. She's yeah. in a store, picks up a, a bottle of juice or something like that, and is at the register or approaching the register and puts it in her bag. Mm-hmm. Um, not clear if she plans to steal it. The store clerk clearly thought she was, grabs her. There's some sort of scuffle um, that takes place. Um, the store clerk is hit in the face. Um, because Latasha's trying to get away from her and hits her to tell her to get off her bags, essentially saying that she was going to pay for it. Um, and I mean, a beat passes as you're watching this video, the store clerk shoots her in the back of the head. She had turned the, around and walked out. I yeah, mean, I she, mean, L- she Latasha Harlan's uh, punched her a couple of, I mean, you see her in court, she's yeah. got a pretty busted up face, but it's mm-hmm. no excuse for But the jury, the but the jury actually convicted and it was the judge yes, yes. that decided on like five years probation uh, when I believe she was convicted of something that could have carried a sentence, uh, maximum prison sentence of 16 years uh, yeah. for voluntary manslaughter. Soon Jadu was um, the name of his empire liquors. Yeah. Yeah. So people yeah. people were outraged. And and again, the back to the film, the just. And the by the way, in, the in, in, oh, in, incidentally, it's important to, to note and often forgot about it, that it was within days, I think five days of the Rodney King beating. Mm-hmm. It was all happened in a very compressed yeah, yeah. period of time. Yeah. So that was in, in 91. Both of the events happened. Yeah. And then the, the trials obviously subsequently happened. And it was the trial, the conclusion of the Rodney King trial that really set things off. Um, but the, the film is really riveting. There are some amazing scenes in there that I, I totally. and you had not seen before. Like no. the woman who is standing in the window of her store, Kore- um, a Korean woman, a Korean yeah. woman standing yeah. in the window of her store, um, shouting at, uh, like looters who are trying to get in. I was going to say protesters and then rioters, <laughs> but it's just looters. They want to come into her yeah. store and steal. And she's standing in her window um, spread eagle, you can be spread eagle standing. Yeah, and it's yeah. the amazing and thing arms about arms out, yeah. outstretched, keeping and screaming, them at bay, keeping too. them at bay, screaming, "This is America! This is America!" Um, and, and someone <laughs> says, "Like fuck you, Chinese!" Blah blah blah. 
and she's like, I'm not Chinese. I think she said, I'm Korean, yeah. and this is America. Yeah. And it's, and I, as you and I, is Goosebumps is incredible that I, no one's really seen this. Is not, this is not one of those images that you associate with the LA riots. I mean, you do with the Re Reginald Denny beating at Florence and Normandy, and some of these other things that we've seen of like, you know, facades of buildings falling down as they're uh, set on fire. Um, and it's an amazing bit of footage because I, it's like a mini version of Tank Man at Tiananmen Square. Hmm. She, this woman is inviting death in a lot of ways because there were 60 odd deaths. I mean, yeah, there were people was killed happening. in looting. There were people shot um, by their own side. There were people shot by the police. There were people shot by gang members. There were people shot by looters. There was a lot of, it was just unchained violence. The LAPD had backed off to try, to, especially at Florence and Normandy. The, the film does does do a good job of capturing yes. just the, the actual, the, the, the tr profound mistake, the error that the yeah. LAPD makes when it decides to just not deal with the situation and is effectively allowing executions to take place in the street, yeah, um, as people are pulled from their car and beaten to death, uh, yeah, in the streets. It's yeah, just I mean, I mean, insane. It, it is. It is really something else to see because what I thought was really um, uh, special about this film is it didn't editorialize in any way. You can always editorialize by how you edit a film, but to see the LA riots in that sense, I mean, you have it. it rem reminded me of the very, very good documentary called "Let the Fire Burn" about the move bombing. Um, and the police bombed a radical, um, you know, far, I mean, I mean, far left is bizarro cult in Philadelphia called Move and, and essentially let a fire burn across row houses. And the first bit you see, God, these uh, Philadelphia police in the 80s are just complete scumbags. And then about halfway through, you flip and you say, God, these guys in Move are complete scumbags. And I got the same sense of this, of the LAPD, who, you know, under Daryl Gates at the time, thought of themselves as the finest in the world. Nobody has better training. Nobody has this, that, and the other. And they seem that's not true. And then your sympathies, again, are, you know, there's no black and white. There's no binary mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm. And then you see the rioters, and that's exactly what they were. And the racial component of it and the Rodney King part of the beating and the racial component of the people being targeted um, at Florence and Normandy, people's cars being stopped and being pulled out and the windows being smashed with rocks. And you hear somebody uh, yelling out, um, take the white people out, let the black people go, um, let the Mexicans go, but take the white people and the Buddha heads, mm -hmm. which I assume I don't know. means Sikhs or Muslims or I something. It's not, not entirely clear, but it was this racial categorization that you had to attack people based, based on this. And it, it was full blown, you know, Riot, race mm -hmm. war, et cetera, in, in miniature. There's another documentary that came out almost at the same time uh, this year, which I watched, uh, which John Ridley's documentary uh, called Let It Fall. And it uh, enraged me. And uh, this is not, it, it's enlightening in some ways because they have, they have interviews with those who beat Reginald Denny, including Damien Football Williams, the famous uh, guy who, who, who smashed the, the, the brick on um, on his head and almost killed him. And there's some very, very touching moments in it of these guys that are locals in South Central um, that saved Denny and one that saved another another guy by pulling them to safety. And it really chokes you up because these are unbelievable heroes. I mean, really heroic. And you see this and they're unbelievable heroes and you don't know their names. And I still don't remember their names after watching the doc. Um, but you also have the people interviewed, including Williams from prison, who's in prison for a murder 
not. He was he was acquitted. Everyone forgets this, by the way. The jury effectively acquitted um, those who attacked Reginald Denny to avoid another another um, L.A. riot situation. Mm -hmm. It was a political verdict and he got away with it, as these other guys did, too. He was later convicted um, of uh, partner gang murder. Mm -hmm. So he's in prison. There's a very gauzy treatment of, of him in this and the others who, who did it. And no one, no one who beat Reginald Denny is apologetic about it today. Not a single person. Not one. They say, if you could take it back, would you? No, I'd do the same thing. And it's very, very, very frustrating because it is referred as we, as you and I talked about this weekend, Camille, as the uprising throughout it. And you, you see it's a, it's very kind of disjointed when you see the uprising and these title cards and people talking about the uprising. And then you see the actual footage, which looks nothing like an uprising. It looks like a mob stealing yeah. things well, and hurting people. And it reminded me of the onion headline, which I sent you from the Our Dumb Century book, which has probably the best use of the journalistic comma for comedy purposes. <laughs> and the headline is a picture of people going into a store and taking all the shit out. And it says, uh, rioters demand justice, comma, tape decks, <laughs> which I thought was pretty much right. I mean, there are some people that really were peeved and most of them were just yeah. trying to get some tape decks. Yeah. But both of these films, one I thought was great. And the other, I was, I was, um, I was very frustrated by Matt. I don't know if you've seen either of these projects, Mr. LA, but you, but you know, many things about LA. Um, and, and of course there were, there were people protesting who were not rioting, um, as well. For sure. For sure. Um, but, but Matt, what, what, any thoughts to share with us? Any L.A. wisdom? The corner of Florence and Normandy is maybe five miles from where I grew up, 510. Um, I didn't have time to Google map it right before I started making that comment, but uh, not that far away. Uh, Compton was in my high school, one of the five schools in my high school district. I remember uh, going to play baseball uh, there in high school and uh, unusually for, and this is 1986, five, kind of in that range. Um, usually you would get dropped off at the front of the school and you'd walk through the school to go to the field, right? Uh, in, uh, in Compton back then, uh, whose uh, nickname were the Tar Babes, um, uh, you would get uh, your bus driven right to the field. It would like go through because they knew because people throwing rocks at it and stuff. It was like it was rough. It was a different uh, time. Um, I experienced all of that, including the uh, the picture of uh, the National Guardsmen, you know, two, three days after Florence and Normandy completely burned down uh, by watching CNN, uh, you know, from the American Hospitality Center in uh, Prague, Czechoslovakia, um, at, or uh, seeing the, the, the picture in the International Herald Tribune. So getting the, the news like a day, day and a half uh, late and um, and seeing all of that unfold. And this is a, a, a five year stretch where, or even four year stretch where everything went wrong in uh, Southern California. Mm. You had the end of the Cold War, which is a good thing, but it turns out that's 200,000 aerospace jobs. Uh, you know, where I grew up, everyone's dad was an engineer. Um, and then when I came back in 91, there was a for sale sign on every third house on my block because everyone's dad had been an engineer and those jobs went away in a hurry, which uh, everyone immediately blamed on the Mexicans, which I thought was pretty great. Um, so you had the that you know, really sarcasm. The first yeah, sarcasm. 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 No, I mean, it, it was it was so obvious this was the thing that caused the local economy for the first time in 40 years to crater. 
um, and uh, and you know, uh, knock housing values, which had never been touched since the end of World War II. And walking around in 1991, it was the first time I'd heard a bunch of people say it's you know it's it's those goddamn Mexicans, and they're telling me all kinds of like terrible Mexican jokes that I the kind of which I never heard in high school. Um, uh, you know, just a few years previous, suddenly they were blaming on that at that point. So that's 91, 92. You start, you get to the Rodney King incident itself, which is horrific. And then the, 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 the trial, which I think is, uh, was, was badly done. And then the riots, which is just not very well done at all. Uh, there was also an earthquake in there. There were some fires. There's just a bunch of shit happened for five years in my hometown, uh, or home uh, county at least. Um, and again, a lot of this pretty close to where I grew up. Um, and I experienced this as uh, almost proof that I would never live in my country again because I, it just looked like such an incredible hellscape. Mm. Uh, even even the, watching the OJ trial, I was living in Hungary at the time, um, Budapest uh, in 95, I guess, is when the trial is going down. It was front page news every single day in the Hungarian press. It was on local TV. And uh, as we've seen through, I mean, you guys are referencing these documentaries uh, and, you know, the documentaries in the OJ series themselves, all of which have been really, I think, really great and interesting. They, each of them have maybe their own micro flaws, but uh, it just shows this, this whole kind of like um, collective nervous breakdown of an entire region. Forget you were talking uh, Camille, I think about how, or no, uh, uh, Moynihan was talking about how uh, uh, that the Reginald uh, Denny uh, the trial thing was sort of like quickly hush hush because they didn't want to have another bad judgment. Well, let's not forget the OJ trial was cited to downtown LA because they didn't want to repeat of the Rodney King That's experience exactly. being yeah. judged in Simi Valley. So like the whole structure was just like broken. The psyche of the place was broken. The policing was broken. There was a reason. I mean, I live far away, um, but I knew enough about the realities of what life is lived uh, like among people who have to deal daily with the cops and especially black people where I grew up. Um, that you, you said uh, I oh, knew they had to deal with especially black people, you're saying? That that was particularly I'd hard think for them, especially black people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've I've mentioned this before to you, Camille. But I, um, on my block, there was a guy who was a cop, um, uh, who's older than me, but he was, you know, we played football together. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I remember after he became cop, uh, him bragging about how he was really great when you would get a nigger because you can get him and you can get him uh, with your buddies and take him out back and just beat the shit out of him because who are you going to believe, a cop or a nigger? Um, mm. that tends to imprint certain things on your brain about power, sure. uh, about racism and these things. And I knew enough people growing up uh, who lived in terror of cops and, and LA cops are different than New York cops. They are, you know, it's a, you, instead of 50,000 people, I'm throwing numbers out here for a city of X million, it's more like 10,000 for a city of pretty much the same millions. And they're all patrolling by car. It's they don't live out. around there. Yeah. It's just a different geographical scenario. So all this kind of stuff mixed together. So I experience it all as the, the, almost the same kind of trauma that I imagined the year 1968, which is the year that I was born and all these terrible things happened. Like it's so bad that I don't want to go too closely into it. Like I'm kind of terrified. Michael was over uh, talking about this uh, documentary and it sounds really great and I know I'm going to watch it. Um, but I also know that I almost don't want to know. I came back to LA in 1998 mm -hmm. um, at a time when the region, after licking its wound, it was really like, uh, you know, all, all of the books were Mike Davis books. He's this great Marxist 
kind of a sociologist, but a really gifted writer. Um, not so tight on the facts necessarily, but he wrote uh, The City of Quartz and then The Ecology of Fear, both of these kind of hellscape apocalyptic looks at Los Angeles and the imaginations uh, of Los Angeles. But it, it started to come out of that. And the people who decided to stay after all this hell had happened were the kind of people who were just kind of uh, rolling up their sleeves and saying, fuck it. It can't get worse. Um, so I tend to identify with those types of people. And it turns out I, I have some L.A. patriotism in me. Um, and the place and the region and the policing and a whole bunch of other things got uh, almost unrecognizably better since then. It took a long while for people to recognize that. And you would still have thumbsuckers in the L.A. Times and elsewhere on anniversaries saying like, oh, could we have another riot uh, this year or next year? Um, and I think people would completely oversell uh, how much they thought that was possible. I wrote a piece that people can Google up at Zocalo, L.A. about five years ago explaining why I thought we could not have another a uh, riot like that, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, and I hope, I, and uh, but I hope I'm not. Uh, th so things had changed, but it's still uh, the the lived-in horror of that, and the ideas behind it, and the amount of kind of tribal uh, uh, identification and violence associated with that is so terrifying to me at a base level and injurious because it's it's that's me, that's my people. It's not like some people in goddamn Boston like beating each other up who cares you know that's a win-win right uh but if we hadn't gone so long i would just open up on you right now but we've been going on for a bit um uh, so uh no it's uh uh it, it's it's terrifying and uh and i think it's much worse than i am willing to even look at um and i'm i'm kind of scared too and thank you for making me uh confront my demons yeah no it's 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 worth watching um it is a it is a bit more pessimistic um it effectively uh, is is this is watts too and uh it, it certainly believes that there's a watts 3 coming i don't think that's that's a spoiler no um that's the perspective of this film there's no there's no narrator there is certainly a narrative there is always one in documentary filmmaking we are always trying to tell you something uh, as we uh, as we dis distribute our films at you, um, uh, I say as the non-creative on a number <laughs> of documentary projects. Um, at any rate, we we're, we're done. We're I mean, done. This is, this is a lot. Um, That's a lot. I, I think we're finished. Bite right, Matt? marks. You need OJ, to go drink. Punching it. Everybody. Just I don't know. What did we talk about tonight? All of the things. I wasn't even here. All of the things. I just well, been drinking Bushmills. Thanks. Thanks, thanks so Drew. much, Drew White, uh, like for, Drew White. for hooking us up with the Bushmills. Um, for the the wonderful notes and for uh, paying off Moynihan so he continues to <laughs> I show. encourage everybody else to pay me off and I do <laughs> take both uh, pay, PayPal and what's the other one that I've used? Mm -hmm. what's Ven the other? Venmo. Venmo. Yeah. Venmo. Don't both give work. him anything both uh, work. before you give me both uh, my work. million dollars. I would dollars. love to have a nice meal tomorrow night. Uh, well, Welch, have fun out there uh, in, in Vegas. Thank you. Don't bring home any uh, any any uh, you know Take it easy. D'Souza's. <laughs> I, I will take pictures of every professed uh, fifth column fan. Oh, and, uh, I, I and bet you'll find out. some out Man, there. Dear God. Yeah. We love you all. <laughs> all right. Later. Tell, tell them to put my money in envelopes. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.